Hi everyone, Jason Rodriguez, CEO and co-founder of Z Prime, here with Zaina Elazi, CEO and founder of Gay Zero. Zaina, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't you first start off maybe telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure, happy to. Um, so I consider myself to be a renewable energy and sustainability expert. I've been in various uh, you know, parts of the renewables world, whether it's wind or solar or battery storage uh, for, for over 20 years at this point. Um, and I'm now off to my second startup. The first one was in renewable natural gas and advanced plastics recycling. So I've touched on a little bit of everything when it comes to uh, emissions reduction and renewables. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about that career journey. Right? It's been quite, you've seen a lot, experienced a lot, and maybe, maybe share with our listeners out there who are going through their own career journey, how you've come to be. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, you know, I think I definitely have a atypical uh, career journey. I really like to continually stay challenged and inspired. Um, and it's all sort of within what my primary mission is, right? So ver from a very early part of my career, I've really been focused on emissions reduction and, and climate change and doing something about climate change. And so when I got my master's degree from the University of Texas at Austin, um, I did it in energy and mineral resources, but I focused on wind energy. And that was sort of very cutting edge at the time um, and required a lot of creativity to make the transition from you know what was essentially no wind on the grid back then to what we now have today, which is quite a significant portion of the grid being in wind and uh, and and really that part of the industry uh, being commoditized, right, um, and more mainstream. And I think my career has generally followed anything that gets a little too. Uh, predictable or mainstream, it's usually my sign to get out. <laughs> so I like to, you know, from there I went to solar when it was um, growing and becoming a little bit more accepted and mainstream. You know, when I first started solar, the biggest projects were 10 megawatts. And now look where we are in the hundreds of megawatts, right? Um, same thing goes for uh, battery storage. You know, there were no battery storage projects when we started working on those when um, I was in mid-career. And now they're pervasive and there's a lot of new technologies. Um, and, you know, I like to kind of see myself as the person who takes existing technology um, so I'm not a technologist. I don't like take that kind of risk on. I just look for ways to apply that technology in a commercial and scalable way to essentially bring it to the world um, in, in an efficient and economic way. Fantastic. Well, we're here in Austin, Texas. <clears throat> I'll do that with you. <clears throat> we're here in Austin, Texas, and you did mention you're a UT graduate. I am. Austin has changed a lot, though, as well, but it's also become like a magnet for for clean energy, if you look at you know, today, there's Tesla, but there was so much that has happened and going on outside of that. Um, maybe you should maybe share a little bit about what, what you think makes Austin great or what makes it really stand out as a clean technology hub. Yeah, I mean, other than it being a great place to live with a lot of talent, really, the talent pool here, whether it's people moving from other places or, you know, the fact that we have so many univers universities and uh, higher education, 
Um, that's that in and of itself makes Austin an attractive place to find good quality talent as well. But um, you know, in September of last year, uh, the city of Austin announced its climate equity plan, um, which which has you know the city reaching net zero by 2040. So citywide greenhouse gas emissions by 2040. That's kind of a big deal. Um, as part of that, uh, we're looking to have 40% of the total vehicle miles driven in the city come from electric vehicles. Um, as you might imagine, that's going to require a lot of EV ownership, and the focus from the city of Austin is to do that equitably. So kind of looking across the entire demographic and making sure that it's feasible for people of all uh, income levels to invest in electric vehicles and to drive electric electric vehicles. And then, um, you know, that's also going to require quite a bit of infrastructure, right? So building out the level one, two um, charger stations, as well as DC fast charging in the city is going to, um, is a big focus of the climate equity plan. Um, and I think it's really important to note that just even since the plan was passed uh, due to higher gas prices, it's already um, ahead of the initial forecasts uh, because of the total cost of ownership being more advantageous now that gas prices are higher than what they were when the plan was passed. Very good. Uh, Mark and I you know, founded Z Prime in, in 2007 and in Austin, and we never thought that it'd become like the magnet. So I, I got to ask, like coming out of UT, did you, did you see yourself making that career and building it in Austin? You know, I, I loved Austin very much, but at the time when I graduated, I felt like I had to go to Houston, right? Because Houston was the place where you went if you wanted to be in energy. Yeah. And um, very quickly realized that Houston was not a good culture fit for me. Like <laughs> I, love, I love Houston now, and I think it's got you know, a lot to, to offer folks, but I love the sort of cutting edge and progressiveness of Austin. And you know, I came back on, you know, a couple years after I, I went and did my first job in Houston, and I was fortunate enough to take advantage of the fact that there were a lot of renewable energy companies wind at the time that were starting to make their home base here. And we've seen a lot of ups and downs when it comes to that. You know, first it was European companies coming in who had done a lot of wind energy there and then kind of creating Austin home bases because of the renewable portfolio standard that was passed at the time. Um, and there's been like multiple evolutions of that at this point. So while I didn't see it, I always wanted it to happen. I do think yeah. that, you know, the city, um, the ecosystem, you know, the tech industry in particular and renewable energy and clean tech all have sort of an overlap within one another that creates a, a hub for, you know, making this a really interesting place to, to be in business. And, and one of the really exciting reasons that Gage Zero is, is based here in Austin. So Gage Zero, great. Thanks for the lead in there. <laughs> um, tell us about the origin story and why. I know you mentioned you like to tackle things when they're when industry starts to change, and this is one with has got all types of <laughs> red flags, as as the buzzword is today. But how did it come to be, and 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 why are you so passionate about the Gate Zero story? Yeah, I when I left uh, my last startup last summer, you know, I just kind of made a commitment that, and and I was in a very privileged position that I could take time off, right, and. I took three months off and I said, I'm not gonna make any decisions. I'm going to 
talk to everybody I can talk to, right? And I reached far and wide, asked for introductions, talked to people all over the globe. And I was seeking to apply what I'm good at, right? So we want to kind of focus our, our skill set on what we're good at. We want to invest in what we're good at um, with my mission, right? And the mission is to do everything I can to help to tackle the issues of climate change. Um, and at the same time, as I was having these conversations with colleagues in New Zealand and in the UK and in China and India and in the United States, um, I was reading a lot. And one of the books that I read at the time is called Speed and Scale by John Doerr. And that book is basically like a, a six-point plan on how to solve climate change, really actionable steps, right? And I, I really became inspired. I mean, we, we all have heard electrify everything, right? Um, and why that's important. And I think that as I was having all these conversations with individuals who were doing amazing things all over the world and reading um, and listening to everything I could get my hands on, it became really clear to me that the United States is far behind on electrification, particularly in the commercial space. And that is a huge place for us to make a massive impact in a short period of time. And uh, that means, you know, real uh, greenhouse gas emissions reductions with technology that's available and affordable today. And that's kind of how Gauge Zero came about. With, with those sort of ideals and facts, um, being tied to the fact that, you know, I'm good at infrastructure and I'm good at building things. I like, I'm the kind of person that likes to look at a piece of property and, you know, come back two years later and see the fruits of my labor where we've constructed something that's real and tangible that's helping to, to solve the issues of climate change. That's inspiring to me and it, it really helps me get up every morning and be excited and, and remember that I get to do this every day. And, and you have seen this story before in, mm -hmm. in, some, in some parallel universe, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's how we met, right? Ten years ago. Yeah, it's uh, been a while. Summit, <laughs> it's and, been a while. And a lot has changed, but also a lot has stayed the same, and that, I think that speaks to, like, the crux of probably why we all do this, because it is so daunting. Um, there are lots of failures and scars, and everyone has their own war wound stories. But how do you see maybe these parallels of when you look at uh, government incentives, when you look like, market excitement for, for things and how technology is disrupting this. Is there any, any layer, layers of like parallels you want to draw or challenges that you see or, or maybe just like flat out, hey, this does not make sense how, in how you see the world? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of parallels, um, particularly uh, with respect to commercial electrification. I think one of the biggest ones is that power purchase agreements, which are pervasive in wind and solar, um, have a real application to commercial vehicles. And that's different than the passenger vehicle space when you look at electrification. What we're trying to do is build hubs that are quite expensive, right? Um, you know, massive capital investments in order to electrify fleets in a meaningful way. And that requires contractual elements that I think can be uh, drawn on from the wind and solar space. So that's, that's one way that we see 
um, a lot of similarities that, that our customers are going to be really familiar with, right? If you um, talk to an Amazon or a Walmart, they're going to understand a PPA and they're going to see how that applies to commercial fleet electrification. Um, one of the things that I think is both a challenge and an opportunity is for utilities. And, and across the board, we know that our grid is stressed. Um, and utilities really need to be forward thinking in resolving how they create the ecosystem for electrification when there's so many challenges. Um, and they're going to need to engage proactively in project planning and in upgrading the grid. And that needs to happen in advance of the load coming. Otherwise, we're going to have rolling brownouts and then potentially blackouts, right? Now, the, the positive news, I think, for utilities is that it's really the single largest revenue opportunity for a utility. If you think about the fact that something like 38% of the increase in the demand on the grid is going to come from electric vehicles, that's a massive revenue opportunity for utilities, particularly if we can address, you know, how do we do rate structures and, um, you know, how do we make it easier for companies to do what they really want to do. A lot of these companies have made massive commitments to meet net zero goals by certain time periods, and that, that, that's going to need a lot of support um, from the utility. So it's both a challenge and an opportunity. I think another place, uh, just real briefly, where there are similarities is, you know, there, there's a OEM and vendor and EPC uh, landscape that has done this kind of before, right? There's not a lot of difference between solar and battery storage um, and how it applies to electrification. A lot of these project sites are going to need a significant amount of energy management. And we can take the lessons that we've learned from um, solar and battery storage and apply those to charging and make sure that, you know, we're using the best technology available um, to, you know, make sure that we're charging at times that we can uh, help the grid and not hurt the grid um, and really optimize the way that fleets uh, are managed and driven and help drivers make good decisions about when to charge and when not to charge. So there's a lot of learning opportunity there, but a lot that we can draw on from, from the OEMs as well. And you mentioned a little earlier how the, maybe the approach the approaches are different, and that's what really kind of sets gate zero and how you thought like, you could really move the market in terms of how some of the solution providers might be approaching uh, fleet, fleet commercialization and fleet charging now. But uh, you guys see a, maybe a different way that, that could really optimize how to increase adoption, lower costs, higher rates of uh, a service, higher service level rates. Maybe talk about that difference. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to sort of lay the groundwork for what it is that we're talking about. So why, why are we in this space, right? We've got medium and heavy duty vehicles that make up, you know, somewhere between five to eight percent of all vehicles on the road. And yet they uh, are responsible for over 30 percent of the emissions. That has huge health impacts for the communities where we see a lot of these facilities, whether it's ports or inland distribution centers. You know, the people that live around these places, they have a, a very potentially negative health outcome, and that's been, that's been proven out scientifically. 
Um, the, the other thing that will add to that is the fact that electric vehicles are expected to represent over 40% of sales by 2030. That's a huge number. Um, and what does that mean? That means there's going to need to be a massive shift in the infrastructure that's required to meet the needs of these, these vehicles. It's not just like, let's put a charger here, let's put a charger there. When you start talking about thousands of vehicles that need to be electrified in the next, call it seven year period, you're starting to talk about five, 10, 15 megawatt hubs that are necessary for electrification. And all of a sudden you're looking at the, these many power plants that are gonna need to be uh, installed. And so those two things together, I think make this the single most kind of exciting and important thing that we can do to make a positive impact. Um, and we think that the time is now, right? I think I mentioned just a few moments ago that you know companies have made commitments on um, not only electrification, but emissions reductions and various companies like Walmart and Amazon. Those are the household names that you hear about, but there are a lot of other companies that you maybe don't know their names that are really thinking about this and trying to figure out how, how do they do this in a cost-effective way, and they need help, right? Um, it's hard to navigate, how do I do grants and incentives? Which grants and incentives do I go after? Um, what federal regulations and incentives do apply versus what don't? Is the ITC a thing for me or is it not a thing for me? Um, how does the you know clean truck and uh, clean fleet rules apply to my business and how does it not apply to the business? And I think what we do at Gage Zero is we take all of that as uh, information and a service and we, essentially break that down in a way that says, we're gonna solve this for you, we're gonna go out and we're gonna understand the ecosystem, we're gonna present you with the best way possible for you to electrify your fleet. Because a lot of these companies you know, aren't the Amazons of the world. They don't have an energy team that's out there figuring this out for them, and they really do need help. And we take that and we create a service from that. And then on top of that, we layer the fact that we have the capital to invest in these, in these projects. And our projects are capital intensive because again, we're not just a charging company. We provide charging services but we do a lot of energy management. And part of the energy management is making sure that we, for example, have battery storage on site to make sure that we have resiliency and resource adequacy at these projects, locations. And then we pass along those benefits to our customers so that they can see the value of making that switch to electric. So hopefully that, that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then just there's resiliency, there's reliability, and, and then there's this this equity piece that mm -hmm. I think you you engage zero have kind of set set a tone out from the start, which is truly unique in terms of. Uh, but it's also a business benefit, as we've kind of discussed in the past. Maybe share some of what, how you see those core tenants merging in this really complex space. Yeah, I mean, I think to really talk uh, uh, about that and answer the question, you know, we really have to understand why equity is important, right? And equity is important, um, you know, the communities that I talked about that have those severe health impacts, those are often the communities that are working in the areas that, you know, are servicing um, the fleets and that are driving the fleets. And so if we look at the longevity 
of the workforce and workforce development, we need to make sure that as we make this transition, that the people that are doing the day-to-day -day jobs are actually benefiting from the transition. And when we do that, we have partners. And when we have partners, everybody wins, right? And, um, and there's absolutely a way to do that in a cost-effective manner. And I think one of the things we need to remember is that the IRA has a lot of provisions in it for workforce development. And that's really critical. Our, our um, economy needs workforce development um, for a variety of different jobs. And for us at Gage Zero, that means training um, you know, operations and maintenance people to make sure that our projects have very high uptime and very responsive service level agreements, making sure that when a driver comes in to plug in to uh, ensure that they can charge their truck, that they don't have to worry about whether or not a charger is working. They don't have to worry about whether or not, if I plug it in now, is it gonna charge now? What's the power rate going to be? Is that gonna be too high or too low? And so um, all of that, you know, I think helps. And you know, ultimately when we talk about equity and when we talk about diversity, um, particularly in leadership and organizations. Um, you know, there are a lot of reports that have massive ranges in terms of what the economic benefits are for that. But overall, about, um, you know, there's agreement that, you know, there's a 15% um, uptick in higher profitability for companies that focus on diversity and equity. And, and that, that kind of, especially here in Texas, as we know, where you, and you, and you look at that holistic problem of, of reliability, grid issues that you mentioned, I mean, even Elon Musk says, if you guys think you're gonna increase global electricity demand 2x, it's probably 3x. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of thought out there that we're actually underestimating the influx. And electrification is, is also driving demand, but it's also a, help, a solution, right? but it also helps if costs are rising, you've got to bring the economic development piece into it. It sounds like you guys are already thinking along those lines of how to be a part of that uh, kind of rising tide, let's all boats uh, mentality. Is that correct? I, I mean, you've nailed it, really. I, there's, there's no reason uh, that everyone cannot benefit from you know, the, the energy transition, as it's kind of in fashion to call it these days. Um, and that means everything from, like I mentioned before, workforce development to health benefits. I mean, it's, it's really um, telling when you look at asthma rates in communities that have a high instance of uh, transportation and logistics. It's, it's, um, it's quite significant. And then we look at studies, like in London, for example, where once they've cordoned off a particular area and they disallow vehicles from being in that area, and within a couple of years, you can see the asthma rates in particular in children going down so significantly that they had to relook at the numbers to make sure that they were correct. <laughs> verify the data. Verify the data, which was verified. You know, there's no, there are cost savings from a, from a community perspective when it comes to making sure that our you know, community is healthier as well. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's development, it's health, and then ultimately for us, it's ensuring that we provide a economic, um, nothing that we're doing really costs us 
anything in terms of competitiveness. It actually creates a benefit for us um, as a company that is focused on ESG. Um, it uh, provides us with a more diverse way of thinking so that we can approach a problem in a community and make sure that we're providing solutions. And it makes us a better partner for our customers who are not only thinking about ways to save money, but thinking about ways that they can have endurability in a particular community. Fantastic. So kind of around the end, it's something I think we're both, we're both passionate about. Um, and this is, uh, you have a unique journey in a, in for short. I think that's also why we wanted to highlight this work because I think Mark and I are fans, our team is fans from afar to see you evolve and continue to make a big impact across different industries. Uh, you happen to be female. You also have uh, also Lebanese descent and, uh, and that's a special category but it's also challenging and probably you, you've been fortunate enough to see how those, where these things can take you, but you're also very uh, cognizant of the challenges. Um, so how could we, or what could we be doing to bring more female founders, especially when you're talking about venture capital, when you're talking about sustaining, sustaining uh, and then you start looking at black and brown uh, people, it becomes even harder. Yeah. So. Well, it's a, it's a huge challenge and I mean, I. I think it's um, one of the biggest things to remember is when you are in a position of success to make sure that you leave the door open behind you, right? We've talked about that. Um, Michelle Obama talks about yeah. that. You know, other folks that I admire, um, you know, ensure that they really highlight the fact that once you are in a position of privilege to keep helping people and to keep mentoring people and to do things like this where we talk about how difficult it is to, to be in this position. So that's, that's a big part of it. There's a couple other things that I want to talk about. One is, um, you're correct. I think it's the statistics nationally are like less than 3% of VC funding goes to female founders. Less than 10% of Fortune 500 companies are female CEOs. And uh, the statistics, I don't know what they are on uh, Lebanese-American uh, women, but they're probably pretty low. Um, we, we have to ensure that, um, I think for me, the biggest thing is representation. So as I'm out here, you know, having been funded, uh, being in a position of being able to hire people, um, the biggest feedback that I get from my employees, I think I had something like close to 100 employees at my previous startup. The biggest resounding piece of feedback I got was, wow, Zaina, I never saw anyone in a position like you, right? So representation matters. We hear this, co this like language all the time, but the number of women in particular who are like, because I see you in this position, you have made it feasible for me to imagine myself in this position. So they go after the deal. They go after the job. They go after asking for that raise. That is really meaningful. So, and we see that across the entire ecosystem, right? Whether you're you know, a person of color, representation matters. So I think that's the biggest one, is ensuring that companies stay focused on the fact that when you have diverse leadership, your economics for your organization are better. That's been, you know, um, clearly uh, tracked by McKinsey and other folks like that. That's a big one. Um, and making sure that we continue to develop and promote, right, through mentorship, through 
And I like to say not just mentorship, but actually sponsorship, right? If you see an individual in your organization that happens to be female or a person of color and you think they have talent, it's not just really about mentoring them, it's about sponsoring them. It's about being like, okay, at every single opportunity, I'm gonna mention this person's name, I'm gonna make sure that they get you know, at least equal, if not potentially more visibility so that they have the opportunity to progress at a particular organization. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, we have to do everything that we can to continue to encourage young women and girls to be a part of STEM programs, to make sure that STEM programs have good funding. Um, you know, and, and we've seen that happen a lot over the last few years, and I just would like to continue to see more of that. I mean, the earning potential of women who um, have been through STEM programs, I think it's something like 25% more wow. um, over their career than uh, a woman who hasn't had a STEM education. So those are real things that we can do, uh, some of them harder than others, to, to help to encourage more female founders uh, in, in the industry. Well, so thank you. Uh, so I have to ask, as we wrap up here, does, does that senior or senioritis, do they know how, uh, how rock star of a mom they have? Or, or you're just mom, probably. My, to my senior, I'm just mom. And I really don't know anything. Just so you know, I'm told this on a daily basis. You don't know anything. Um, I think deep down inside, there's a there's you know there there was a Wall Street Journal article that came out where I was quoted in it, and they thought that was cool. Um, he thought that was really cool. Uh, but uh, I think overall, to to my kids, I'm just mom, and that's okay with me. Yeah, I think <laughs> that is uh, the greatest honor, honestly. But yeah. it's been fantastic. Uh, there's so much we could dive into there. Um, is there anything else you want to make sure we we get across today? Uh, no, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm happy uh, to have folks reach out to me. I think I'll mention that we're, um, you know, our website's gagezero.com, um, and you can find us on LinkedIn. And I'd love to hear from folks, particularly if they're looking for, for an opportunity to join a team that is growing. Uh, we've got some open positions, so that's I'll leave with that plug: is right. uh, come join the team. Yeah, Gay Zero. Headquarters Austin, Texas, Zaina Elazi. Thank you so much. We're Thank really you. excited to have you on the show and hope you'll come back and looking forward to following all the great things you'll continue to do. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay.